You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz. I am also recording from Washington, D.C. Hey, Katie, it's a beautiful spring week here in D.C. How are you doing today? It is absolutely lovely. And uh, I guess as things are getting warmer here in Washington, uh, they are also heating up in the Indo-Pacific. Sorry, that was a terrible segue, but hopefully our listeners will (laughs) forgive me. Um, But um, we do have... A few items on the agenda today. Uh, we're going to do a bit of a mixed bag discussion here today in that, as we sometimes like to do on the Asia Geopolitics podcast, we're going to jump regions a little bit. It's been a while since Katie and I have covered developments in Central Asia. So we'll talk briefly about the geopolitical significance uh, in the region of a new set of U.S. sanctions pertaining to Russia's war against Ukraine. Katie will walk us through the implications there. Uh, and then we'll move over a bit to talk about uh, new developments in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, we can't seem to get away from the Taiwan Strait on the Asia Geopolitics podcast, which is, of course, entirely unsurprising in 2023. But we'll talk a bit about um, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen's uh, meeting with U.S. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and the ensuing fallout. Uh, and of course, as has been the talk of many folks on Twitter, uh, the meltdown over French President Emmanuel Macron's comments on stability in the Taiwan Strait. So Katie, we got a lot on the agenda. I'm just going to cut right to the chase and turn it over to you to give us a bit of an update on these new U.S. sanctions uh, and the implications for the Central Asian region, uh, specifically Uzbekistan. And and, and what what exactly are we taking away here uh, from this latest uh, development? Okay, yeah. So uh, this week, the U.S. and the U.K. have added additional sanctions uh, targeting, quote, Russian financial facilitators and sanctions evaders, which is how the U.S. Treasury Department put it. Uh, and these target on the UK side, Roman uh, Abramovich uh, and Alisher Usmanov. Uh, on the US side, mostly Alisher Usmanov. Uh, those who are not familiar with the world's billionaires, uh, Alisher Usmanov is a Russian Uzbek billionaire. He's a dual citizen. He is uh, estimated to be worth at least $19.5 billion, one of the world's uh, super rich. Um, and these new sanctions, so both of these personally, but the new sanctions on the U.S. side and the the British side target their businesses. Uh, Usmanov uh, has a 49% stake in a company called USM Holding, which owns a whole bunch of other companies, including Metallo Invest, which is a major steel producer in Russia, Megafon, which is one of Russia's largest telecoms, and dozens of other companies. And so these new sanctions hit those companies specifically, which is a change from earlier additions of sanctions that targeted Usmanov personally. These now extend into his business interests, including uh, his family members through which he uh, allegedly moves money. Um, And this is particularly important because Usmanov is a very important figure in Uzbekistan, especially now. Uh, When Shavkat Mirziyoyev became president in 2016, Usmanov was sort of uh, welcomed back in. Uh, Ker- uh, Islam Ker- Karimov didn't really like oligarchs all that much. They made him nervous. Uh, Mirzayoyev really embraced Usmanov, and he has made a lot of investments mm-hmm. in Uzbekistan. Uh, on the list of companies that have been targeted with sanctions, most of them are Russia-based, but at least one of them is an Uzbekistan-based business, which sort of brings to life a, uh, a concern that has circulated around C- uh, Central Asia, particularly in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, uh, that Central Asian businesses and Central Asian money will be targeted by sanctions uh, because of Russia. And this is now happening. So 
So is the interpretation in the region, I don't know if we have reactions from the region so far, uh, is the idea that the dam has sort of broken now and that nobody uh, in Central Asia can really count themselves safe if they're doing business at a, uh, at a significant scale in Russia? So this is interesting because back in uh, November, the Financial Times carried a story in which they reported that Uzbek government officials in meetings with European officials were trying to get Usmanov out from under these sanctions. And the, the Uzbek government case allegedly was that uh, these sanctions are preventing Usmanov from investing in Uzbekistan. Uh, in Europe, don't you want more investment in Uzbekistan? Uh, it clearly that that argument hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. it, certainly from the US and the British and, and the European perspective, Usmanov is a, a Russian oligarch. He has very close ties to Putin. He has very close ties to Museoyev as well. And his money is part of why the Russian economy continues to churn on. And so I think these sanctions are, are intended to uh, do what sanctions are intended to do, which is put pressure on the Russian government uh, to cease its war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in terms of uh, the practical effect here, where do you think the the primary incidence of these sanctions is going to be? Is this primarily going to end up hurting um, Central Asian economies uh, if this continues? Or do you think this is really going to be marginal in the grand scheme of things? I think at this point, it's going to be marginal in the grand scheme. Only one of the companies uh, from the list that I read from uh, State Department and Treasury mm -hmm. in the United States was based in Uzbekistan. Uh, but the the threat remains real that there could be other companies that are targeted if they're being used by people like Usmanov to sort of skirt existing sanctions. Um, and so I, it certainly, I think, will be worrying uh, the rich in Tashkent. Um, but but at this point, I don't I, I think we'll have a larger impact in Russia because that is that is still where the bulk of Usmanov's um, money and his business interests uh, are based. Mm hmm. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, there's one thing I want to note before I like take us to Taiwan. Sure. Um, the uh, USM Holdings uh, sent me a press release uh, or a response to the the sanctions, um, and and you know obviously said that these are unjust. Usmanov doesn't run the company. Um, all this is unfair. Uh, but they they also took sort of particular umbrage at the fact that these sanctions are targeting people like his sister and the, one of his stepsons. Um, but you know, and this is this is one of the the sneaky billionaire tricks, which is where you put a bank account in your sister, your wife's name, and then funnel millions of dollars through it. Uh, and you can say it's not my money; it's her money. Uh, but I, I think that's that's a farce, uh, and, and the U.S. government is sort of calling it out for what it is by sanctioning these family members. Um, the the company uh, likened it to hostage-taking, which I thought was pretty galling, uh, given that there are actual hostages who have been taken by the Russian government, but yeah. uh, that's neither here nor there. But but the, the family connection is also a very uh, central Asian way of doing business. Absolutely. Um, but I think, yeah, so that that's something worth watching still, too, is, is these networks. Um, but let's switch to the other side of the world. Uh, you know, Psy was in the U.S. Uh, briefly in the last, I guess it was over a week ago. Um, she was in New York and then she was in, uh, I guess it was Los Angeles. Uh, Ankit, tell me a little bit about these stopovers and what the sort of response from China was to them. And then we can eventually wind our way towards Macron and his uh, mouth. 
Yeah, sure. So definitely, I think, worth talking about. Um, and first of all, this was kind of, I think, foreseen the moment um, turn of the House of Representatives changed over after the U.S. midterm elections and Republicans took control. Uh, listeners will, of course, recall the um, visit that Speaker Pelosi made to Taiwan last year in August, which we covered extensively on this podcast uh, and at The Diplomat more broadly, resulted in unprecedented uh, types of Chinese uh, kinetic shows of force. Uh, uh, including literally flying uh, multiple missiles over Taiwanese territory uh, with some missiles landing in Japan's EEZ, large-scale exercises, exclusion zones, cutting off U.S.-China exchanges. So um, Kevin McCarthy, who's the current House Speaker, um, effectively uh, wanted to have his own meeting with Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, of course, uh, McCarthy did not travel to Taiwan, which I think was primarily why we saw the kind of reaction we did uh, last time when Pelosi went, which was, of course, the first visit by a speaker uh, in a long time. Um, but this time, um, Cy met uh, McCarthy on U.S. soil on the West Coast. I don't know how much of a difference that actually makes, but further from Washington, D.C., the better in this case. Um, and um, the meeting basically was a show of congressional support for Taiwan as these things go. Uh, fairly standard fare, Psy delivered comments on uh, you know, democracy being on threat, uh, under threat uh, around the world. McCarthy um, called on ta uh, China not to retaliate for the meeting, uh, saying that you know, he's the Speaker of the House and that he won't listen to China. He'll meet with whoever he sees uh, fit to meet with. Um, and of course, I think there's also an element, I think, of partisan deniability here for the Biden administration. One of the perceived problems, at least during Pelosi's visit, was that uh, Biden's a Democrat, Pelosi's a Democrat. Can't Biden just tell Pelosi not to go to Taiwan? And of course, with separation of um, of government in the United States, uh, and and of course, uh, Pelosi being in the legislative branch, that's not how things work. But I think for the Chinese side, there was a perception that the Biden administration was actively egging on, or at least not displeased by Pelosi's visit. And I think here that's, again, an element that's missing, given that McCarthy is a Republican uh, who's who's choosing to go ahead with this meeting. Uh, and so all of this kind of brings us then to the reaction from China, uh, which was uh, severe. I'm not trying to underrate it at all, but I think compared to the kind of reaction we saw to Pelosi's visit, this was relatively more muted. Uh, that said, it was not insignificant by any means. China carried out uh, carrier-based aviation exercises to Taiwan's east um, for the first time. Uh, J-15 carrier-borne fighters uh, were deployed in these exercises. The PLA's uh, Eastern Theater Command uh, also carried out mock strikes on Taiwanese territory. Uh, they also released a computer animation showing multiple missiles being launched from the Chinese mainland and striking multiple targets uh, in Taiwan. Uh, very subtle, you know, the stuff that wins over hearts and minds, but uh, that's that's uh, how China played this. And I think that's broadly brings us, Katie, then to sort of, you know, this idea of a new normal in the Taiwan Strait that we talked about after Pelosi's visit. One of the things that changed was the cadence and the types of activities that China carries out with its military forces in the Taiwan Strait, uh, now east of Taiwan, uh, has certainly changed, right? The median line, which was never particularly sacrosanct, but had slowly been chipped away through a process of salami slicing, has effectively now ceased to be a meaningful threshold. Um, the the Taiwanese Air Force regularly now scrambles to intercept uh, PLA fighters that cross the median line, fighters, bombers, and other uh, military transport aircraft. Uh, and so this, I think, is broadly playing into that long, um, you know, that trend. And I think um, 
Broadly speaking, of course, this is taking place after Balloon Gate and the precipitous decline in U.S.-China re- relations as a result of that. Uh, so all things considered, uh, you know, little little good news here, um, but more, I think, indicators that China is still going to be committed to these kinds of shows of force uh, to retaliate for perceived um, shows of support by the United States towards Taiwan that Beijing interprets to be out of, out of line with what the United States has commuted, uh, committed to in the three communiques and the U.S. one China policy. So I, I have a question, Ankit. Sure. You know, what do you make of the some somewhat parallel uh, trip of Ma Yingzhou to Tsai's uh, predecessor as, as Taiwanese leader, um, his trip to mainland China? I think that got less coverage than Tsai's trip through the United States, even though it was a more... Uh, I think serious trip, but but I'm curious what your thoughts on that that dynamic are. Yeah, no, that that's that's a really interesting um, question, and I, I think it's a significant one, right? I mean, we get into questions of um, you know Taiwanese domestic politics and the perceived move, at least the perceived move in the mainland that the DPP is slowly but surely taking Taiwan towards independence, which of course is not the official policy of the Tsai administration. Uh, But broadly speaking, the DPP can fairly be described as independence leaning. Uh, There are certainly uh, members of the DPP who would be more pro-independence than Tsai personally is. Tsai is rather careful about the terminology uh, that she uses, for instance, to describe Taiwan's status and relationship with China. Uh, but Ma Ying-jeou, as the, as the former president uh, and um, member of the Kuomintang Party, the Nationalist Party, uh, his visit was feted in China, right? I mean, it was a propaganda coup. Uh, the, str- the, the strong emphasis was Chineseness, right? This, this idea that um, that Ma's visit could be presented uh, to the Chinese people and potentially to the world, at least uh, through the Chinese press, as a reminder that China and Taiwan are both effectively Chinese. Uh, and and that was, I think, um, the, the primary symbolism of that visit. I think I think at the end of the day, we're going to have to, uh, you know, see how much this is going to do to actually shift the narratives within Taiwanese politics on how Taiwan should relate to the mainland. The long-running trend in Taiwan that the DPP, of course, is benefiting from uh, is the process of Taiwanization, uh, particularly among the youth, where Taiwanese, a distinct Taiwanese identity as distinct from a broader Chinese identity that that sort of bridges uh, across the Taiwan Strait uh, is is where things have been heading uh, in Taiwan. And I don't really see that reversing. All right. Well, I think we've come to the hottest question on Twitter right now. Uh, what was Macron thinking when he said that about Taiwan? Well, I mean, there's the matter of what exactly he said. And, you know, there's <laughs> been some back and forth about translation problems. But I, you know, I speak French. I lived in Paris for several years. And <laughs> my interpretation is that, you know, basically the translations got it right. I mean, Macron, you know, he has these moments when he generates controversy. Uh, He's done this. I mean, I guess it primarily happens when he's trying to, I guess, extend an olive branch uh, to authoritarian regimes. This happened with Putin prior to the Ukraine invasion. And now I guess it's happening with Xi Jinping in China. Um, But, you know, this idea that security in the Taiwan Strait is effectively not a central interest for France, uh, and that France should be it's you know that Europe should chart its own path and not blindly follow the United States. It's it's very it's very French. It's very kind of you know De Gaulle in uh, in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and you know interestingly on De Gaulle, you know France was the first Western country to normalize relations with the People's Republic of China in 1964. And so you know that's sort of an interesting historical parallel here. 
I think Macron's comments have been since massaged and walked back by French bureaucrats. Uh, it's, it's been really interesting to sort of watch, not really damage control, because everybody's saying, you know, everybody in France is saying that Macron stands by what he said, and there's since been sort of clarifications that France continues to support the status quo. But I think it does create some confusion, right? Because uh, we've talked about France's role in the Indo-Pacific before on this podcast, and the French talking point is always that France is a resident power in the Indo-Pacific. And so Macron's comments that, you know, uh, Europe should not get caught up in crises that are not ours, I think directly cuts against that idea that crises in the Indo-Pacific where France is supposedly a resident, you know, France has more exclusive economic zone in the Indo-Pacific than any other country, uh, which uh, is, of course, an artifact of French colonial possessions. But nevertheless, that is uh, part of the justification for French presence in the region. I think it creates confusion. It blurs, I think, clear deterrent messaging towards Beijing. So broadly speaking, I think it's fair to describe you know this as a net negative uh, for unified Western messaging. I think broadly what's happening here, though, is that, you know, um, we are seeing some some grappling with Europe's sense of strategic autonomy in an environment where I think the EU, uh, the EU especially, I mean, since Brexit also is is broadly coping with a relative decline vis-a-vis the United States, you know, economically, militarily. Uh, and so that, I think, reflects this call for strategic autonomy. Uh, you know, this this Macron controversy also reminds me of a few years ago when he described NATO as being, quote, brain dead. Um, so it's just those it's just this classic Macron moment. But, um, you know, longer term, I think this is going to be a blip on the radar. I don't think this is going to be a fundamental turning point in how France approaches the region. I think the cleanup that's happened after Macron's comments kind of indicates that. But nevertheless, I think it's a it's a revealing and interesting moment about the dynamics and anxieties at play in how France thinks about its role in the Indo-Pacific and, and might be somewhat confused, I guess, based on how President Macron talks about it. Yeah, I think that's an excellent sort of analysis of the the Asia piece in that question. Uh, what I found particularly interesting was the Eastern European reaction uh, to this uh, sort of could probably be summed up as like, why are you insulting the United States right now when we need their partnership so much regarding Ukraine? And I, I think that was sort of an interesting um kind of tension within Europe. It was, it was sort of, you know, what universe are you living in right now, Macron? Like, <laughs> now is not the time. Uh, but it was sort of a, a bit of traditional French, like, independence, yeah. um, maybe showing its flag. Yeah, and, and which, by the way, I think I saw a few funny, uh, well, you know, tongue-in-cheek reactions from uh, friends in Australia who made the point that Macron's comments were exactly the vindication that Australia needed for AUKUS, um, which I thought was a, a, a funny spin on the controversy. Um, but in any case, Katie, I think we'll, uh, wrap it there, um, today and, uh, certainly, you know, no shortage of developments to, uh, come in the region. So we'll be back, uh, with more soon, but thanks a lot for, uh, uh, I mean, first of all, sharing your insights on Central Asia, which is always terrific, uh, and for, uh, yeah, kicking around these ideas on Taiwan. Always a pleasure. Thanks for chatting. Great. Uh, for our listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. Yeah, you can do that wherever you get your podcast. And we really appreciate that feedback. And as always, if you have suggestions for content on future episodes that you'd like to hear Katie and I uh, go over, uh, please do reach out to either of us. We're very happy to take that into consideration as we plan. Thanks a lot for listening. And we'll be back soon with more.